and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hello, hello, beautiful people. I've noticed that so many of you must be getting back into your routine because when we look at the data over the last few weeks, it was like listens everywhere, different days, all throughout the day. And now it's like, bang, straight back to early morning listens, the consistent during the day and and then the afternoon ones. So I hope you're all finding the start to the new year quite good and really starting to step into the new year nice and fresh and thriving. I can imagine most of you have seen the posts in our Facebook community about the High Performance Leadership Summit that I am co-facilitating in March this year. Imagine this, three days, incredible humans, exclusive group work and content. If you're a CEO, executive or senior leader hungry for cutting edge leadership experience, I want you to check this out in the show notes. We've pulled together some of the best in Australia in business, sports, psychology, and military to draw on these different disciplines for leadership. We've capped it at 25 so that we get to know each individual person, where they are at, and elevate them to the next level of high performance. If you haven't seen the lineup already of the all-time superstars, there is Sammy Kennedy-Sim, an Olympian, David Ballard, Head of Performance at Brisbane Broncos, Clifford Morgan, organizational psychologist with the military, and global C-suite executives Wayne Rubin and Pearl Lim, who is coming over from Singapore, and of course myself. It's being held at O'Reilly's Retreat in Queensland, which is a magical location if you haven't been there. I still have to pinch myself at the lineup and also the content that's going to be delivered. It is going to be out of this world, but on to today's pod. I think this episode is the one that I've cried in the most. My heart broke as I listened to Lindy's story. This episode is longer than normal because we completely lost track of time. I sat, I listened, I cried, I asked questions, I cried, I asked more questions and more questions. Lindy shares with us what it was like growing up in the exclusive Brethren community in a high-controlled religious group what her childhood looked like. She shares with us the harrowing experience of being shunned from her family and her community. She lost the people she loved the most in her world, her community, her safety as she knew it, to be tossed out into a world that she was told was evil and wrong. This is a powerful, heart-wrenching story, and I hope that by us sharing it, we will raise the awareness across the world about what some people are experiencing. I'm still learning about different religions and faiths. One thing I'd like to mention before we get into this episode is that it's important to recognize that there are multiple subgroups within the broader Brethren movement, each with their own distinctive features. The exclusive Brethren represent one particular strand with specific doctrines and practices that distinguish them from other Brethren groups. If you are listening today, 
and you or someone you know is impacted by high controlling religious groups, please know that you are not alone. Reach out to someone you can talk to. Lindy has an organization, the Olive Leaf Network. It is a collection of people dedicated to supporting former members of high demand religious groups. If this content stirs up any discomfort or you want to discuss it further, please reach out to the Olive Leaf Network, Lifeline on 13 11 14, or another trusted support resource. Your well-being is important and assistance is available. Now let me introduce you to this phenomenal woman, Lindy. Welcome, Lindy, to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you so much for coming on today. Hi, it's great to be here. Lindy, I love to start every episode with asking what animal best describes you and what is it about that animal in particular? Oh, nice. Well, I'm a big fan of dogs, so it would be, yeah, it would be hard for me to move past a dog. And I think that's because they're really loyal, they're really enthusiastic. I love the way they just take joy in the little things. Yeah, I think I'm, you know, I'm fierce if somebody threatens someone I love and I love going for long walks. So yeah, I could go on and on, but it's probably got to be a dog. (laughs) I often wonder whether when I ask this question, do people first go to animals they love or do they go to their characteristics and traits of their personality and then search for an animal? Which way did you go? Oh, I think I went to, yeah, an animal I, I know and, and that I appreciate, like a dog. I mean, I did think about it because I've also got chickens. But, you know, who really wants to say that they're like a chicken? It just doesn't really, <laughs> it just doesn't really bring about good connotations. <laughs> I remember in my episode they asked me, and you would think, right, that I was well prepared for this question seeing as I ask it every week, but I actually forgot. And so when they asked, I went straight to traits and I was like, this, what are the strongest traits? And then I was like, what animal best describes those right. traits? Right, okay. Know? Yeah. yeah. And what so animal different. was there? A goat. A goat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and someone said to me that I'm like a kitten on steroids. And I was like, that's also a very good description. <laughs> Lindy, thank you so much for coming on today. You're in New Zealand. Yes. For those listeners, we've got listeners all around the world, but it's always a privilege to have someone from over the ocean. And we're going to be having a really big conversation today around high controlled religious groups. So I thought maybe the best place to start is what does that mean for you when I say that a highly controlled religious group? Uh, yes, a high control religious group, or sometimes they're also known as a high cost group or a high demand group. They are also often known as cults or even sects, although all of them have got particular nuances, I suppose, that make people reach for them. But I find terms like high demand or high cost really useful, mostly because they describe a group that usually there's a high cost to joining the group and there's also a high cost to leaving the group. And that's one of the most defining factors about that group. Like there's usually other things as well that commonly they're religious, like commonly they draw on a spirituality or or religious beliefs to help define their group. But then, and yeah, commonly there's like a guru or a divinely anointed leader. Commonly there's a sacred text that they build their belief system around. But yeah, there's kind of the thing that really makes them stand out is that there's high demand, high cost, high control environment to to both joining and to leaving. I love the way you describe that. I haven't heard someone talk about it as a high cost before. And as we get into this conversation, I'm sure we're going to see it. But that makes so much sense to me because in my experience, people do have to sacrifice a lot when they go in. And then they also sacrifice a lot if they want to leave. So we will have lots of conversations about all aspects of this today. Lindy, you grew up 
in a highly controlled religious group, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm comfortable to use that term for a number of reasons. Yeah, so I grew up in a group called the Exclusive Brethren, or they rebranded about a decade ago and are now named the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. In my view, is an attempt to have a more mainstream name or one that doesn't have such negative kind of connotations as exclusive. So, yeah, you might have seen them around there. Obviously, they are all around Australia and their leader and the leader before him, Bruce Hales, resides in Sydney. So, yeah, they've got a good base there in Australia where you are. But, yeah, I grew up among them and I was born and raised in them among, in Auckland, New Zealand. And I left when I was 20. And just before we get into some of your story, is there a difference between when you said the word exclusive brethren, is there is there a couple of different levels? The brethren as a religious sort of movement or group of people did originate in Plymouth in England, which is where they've got the Plymouth part of their name. So that was a couple of hundred years ago under somebody called John Nelson Darby. And at that time, there were lots and lots of sort of free church movements and other denominations popping up as people left like the state church. And so that was when like the Baptists popped up and the Anabaptists and the Methodists and also this group of people who called themselves brethren. And the reason they called themselves brethren, um, it's just a scriptural term, which means brothers. They didn't want to take on a name. But over the last couple of hundred years, they've split like literally hundreds of times. And so all around the world, there are dozens, if not hundreds of little schisms and different groups of people who all call themselves brethren. Here in New Zealand, there's a number of them who call themselves the open brethren, or there's the Renton brethren, or there's like these loads and loads of them. But the ones that became known as the exclusive brethren, they're a very particular lineage. And they are definitely, of all the brethren offshoots, they're one of the ones with the highest level of global conformity and control. And so, yeah, they've got like a very particular lineage of leaders. It's almost like a, they call it like an apostolic succession because they view it's like in the line of Paul the Apostle, that it's like a divinely appointed leader that gets handed on from man to man. And yeah, so they, they are their own very particular group, the Exclusive Brethren. But yes, there are other, um, probably in Australia too, other sort of more mainstream, yeah, less kind of high levels of conformity groups of people who are affiliated with the Brethren name. I was thinking about a good place to start might be what did life look like for you growing up? Yeah, so the exclusive Brethren, yeah, as I said, they're marked by a really high level across each place where they're located around the world, a very high level of conformity around dress, lifestyle, the routine of your your life, the yeah, the rules and the beliefs and the religious doctrine, you know, that you can adhere to. So that's something that really marks them out because yeah, especially I think the global conformity of it, that, you know, I could go to an exclusive brethren home in France or in Argentina or in Canada, and they would all on their lounge wall have seven photographs of the current leader and the previous six leaders. And they would have a similarity in the way we were the woman would be dressed, you know, we would have no jewellery or makeup or trousers. The men are not allowed facial hair or beards. Growing up, we did not have any technology. So we had no radio, no TV, no computers, no fax machines. Yeah, all that sort of thing. So yeah, and then we, our lives followed by a very strict routine that was set by the church. So we had church every single night. 
that was like right down to often even babies would be expected to come to that sort of between 7 to 9 p.m. And we would go to the meeting halls and people would sit in concentric circles with men separate from women rather than, you know, most churches here sit today sit in rows. But yeah, they'd sit in concentric circles. And yeah, we had that every single night. Sometimes it would be with a smaller group and sometimes it would be with neighbouring towns, brethren from neighbouring towns. So there'd be, you know, up to several hundred people. And then we also had it once, had church once on Saturday and we had it four times on a Sunday starting at six o'clock in the morning with like Holy Communion. They didn't use that term, but, you know, the bread and the wine. Did you say four times on a Sunday? Yeah, yeah, starting at 6 a.m. So even, you know, I'm the third of six children and all of us, right down to the baby, had to be up, you know, after 5 a.m. getting ready and be taken, you know, get in the car and go off to have this communion service. So, yeah, so you can see that our lives were everything, you know, went around was to, you know was was based around this routine of our life together as brethren. And what would it look like if you were sick or someone didn't go? If you were sick, that was acceptable, but you'd have to give a reason. And so, if you didn't go, normally one of the elders from your local church group would be calling you to find out where you were at. And I've heard <laughs> the, the brethren have changed a lot in some ways since I left, largely. I left in 2008, and shortly thereafter, they actually did bring in technology, but it's highly controlled technology. You, they're only allowed to hire devices, that's computers and mobile phones and that sort of thing, from something called UBT, which is Universal Business Team. It's, it's essentially their business arm or their like administrative arm that Bruce Hales, the current leader, has set up. It's a massive network of sort of things that they offer their current members. Like it's got an accountancy arm, it's got, you know, business advice and support. It, yeah, it does a huge amount of things administratively for the brethren. But one of those things is that you have to hire your devices from them and they are all installed with some internet management software called Streamline 3. And that blocks a lot of internet you know, it blocks a number of things like the Olive Leaf Network, which we'll talk about later. It's a, a charity I run to support people who leave such groups. It is blocked from their devices. So people can't access it. Interesting, Lindy. I just written down on my piece of paper, is it still the case with no technology? Yeah. Because then I wrote, what about work? Oh, how could you survive? They've got their own schools now. I, I did go to a normal primary school, but while I was growing up, they were busy building their own private schooling system which is called One School Global. And it's, again, like globally connected private schooling system for brethren children only. When I was there, you weren't allowed to complete seventh form. And at the time, I was told it was so that you couldn't get university entrance. And you were expected to leave at, you know, 16 or 17. And one of the high control things about the brethren is that you can only be employed by other brethren companies by other brethren employers. So you can't go out and, and train to be a nurse or a pilot or a doctor or any of those sorts of things. You have to just go and start working for an, another exclusive brethren company. So I did that and I was, I don't know, 16 or 17. And, you know, going back to the technology thing, it was really tricky because everyone was starting to use emails. Of course, this was like 2000 and I don't know, it must have been 2006 or something, 2005. And we would sit there, you know, women could usually, usually were only office office administrators, you know, and we'd sit there with our typewriters tapping away, you know, you know, the thing would go back and forth and click, 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 click. And people would come in and like look over the counter and be like, 
what the fuck is that, you know? Because <laughs> people, even then, people didn't really see traditional typewriters. Yeah, then we would type a letter and we would take it down to like the warehouse stationery or another company and get them to scan and send the email for us as like an attachment. So, and we had to do that with faxes too, because we were not allowed faxes. You know, it's okay for others to sin, but we couldn't sin by using the technology ourselves. And then they just did this huge about turn after I left, which is, it still blows my mind where they did allow. And, and I think it's because they realized they could not survive. For brethren, running businesses is, is essential to their whole way of life because they can't be employed by others. And so they needed to compromise. And, and so I think streamline and you know, having devices managed externally through a Brethren software system is their compromise. When you mentioned earlier that you went to a normal school, what was that like for you going to school and seeing that other kids were living differently, doing things differently? Even when you talk about having to go every single night from for a couple of hours, other kids may be playing sport at that time or going to friends' houses. What was your experience at school? Yeah, I mean, we growing up in the Brethren, you're taught all the time that you're special, that you're different, you know, that you're like a chosen people. And so we did know we were different. And and that came with blessings and curses, I suppose. Like in the Brethren, you're not allowed to socialise with people who are not Brethren. So we weren't allowed to have other kids over who weren't Brethren kids. And we were not allowed to go to their houses. In some ways, that was hard. Like you must, m- me and my siblings used to, used to want to do extracurricular activities. So that was another thing we weren't allowed to do. We were sporty and we would like, you know, win the school, you know, cross country, but then we weren't actually allowed to go to into school sports. We, we weren't allowed to take it beyond that. Like anything sort of, yeah, we were there to do the bare basics, but not to get too deeply involved. So some things were really hard. And on the other hand, as kids, the world you know is the world you know. And we had friends in the Brethren who we saw every evening and, that was our normal. We didn't talk about what was on TV or we played, you know, tag in the back hall of the meeting car park. Did you have language around your experience with kids in your year group? Like, did people ask questions? Sometimes people ask questions, but on the whole, they would leave us alone. I mean, we, you know, girls had to wear skirts and we had to wear little bands and stuff, but I think I have heard accounts of others, you know, feeling quite ostracised and bullies, but I had a couple of little other brethren girlfriends and and we would hang out together. I think the other thing was is that we were not allowed to eat with others because that's a very core practice of the brethren is that they and they consider eating with people to be socializing with them and to be sharing and you know that it shows acceptance and and for them that breaks a moral code. It, it, for them it's sharing in another person's sin. So they'll only eat with people who they perceive are spiritually pure, which is only other exclusive brethren. So yeah, we had to get picked up by our mum every day at lunchtime and taken home to eat at home rather than to eat with the others. So in some ways, I guess, you know, even those opportunities for socialising like lunchtimes were minimised. Yeah. What about when you're sitting in a class and you're doing a project with someone else? I can just imagine that there's this big void between you and the other kids in that you're not socialising, you're not playing sport, they see you going home at lunchtime, you're not there in the afternoons, you're not going to the playgroups. Like what would happen then in class if you had to do a project with someone next to you? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't have good answers. I don't know if the teachers, perhaps more than I realise, the teachers maybe used to have to take things like that into consideration as, you know, if they did set group work or whatever. But yeah, if, you know, if they ever watched something on a screen in the classroom, we had to go and sit in the library. Again, I don't know. 
obviously now with bringing in their own private schooling, they will have changed a huge a huge amount of that because, you know, they're able to establish the control of exactly what is and isn't taught in the schools. And, and I do hear that they have, you know, for example, got really strict availability of resources that teachers have to get approval for every kind of resource that is taught and the resources in the libraries and that sort of thing are different, yet there's not as wide a range available as what would we would might find in a normal library. And are the teachers and staff also brethren in the One Global Schools? No, no, they're not because you can't train as a teacher because you can't go to university. Still. That's correct, yeah. I have heard lately that there are some people who get approved people, get approval to do by distance study, especially if it's going to further their businesses. So, for example, business management. But even UBT is offering its own in-house business and accountancy training these days as well. The thing to understand the brethren is that right from John Nelson Darby, and right at the start, his big thing, he, he wrote this big paper called Separation from Evil, God's Principle of Unity. For him to separate from external evil influences was the like number one goal of his life and his spirituality. And that whole dynamic that he had, that whole philosophy is what continues to define the Brethren today, especially the, the, the Exclusive Brethren or the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. That thing, separation from evil, that's behind you know their practices we might otherwise see as being bizarre or strange or extreme. For them, it all circles back to keeping separate from outside evil influences. So that's why they don't allow university study or certainly not on site. Well, you know, I would love to be proved wrong if somebody can give me evidence to the contrary, but Certainly when I was in there, and I haven't heard any different lately, that people, yeah, they're, they're, you're not allowed to go to university, you're not allowed to work for outsiders, they have their own private schools, like why you don't eat with others. It all comes back to the doctrine of separation from evil. That That's their religious reason anyway. And, you know, you said it earlier around it was my everyday, it was my normal, like it's what I grew up with. Were there moments in time that you were like, this is not the life that I want? As a teenager, I know like so often you buck the system, right? But I'm wondering for you growing up because there was so much, I think of the word strictness around it, you know, you do this and then you do this. There was so much structure and conformity. Did many of your teenagers buck the system or people feel like they were like, I don't want to be here anymore? And then what did that look like? Yes, absolutely. I think both personally and many, many, many people in the Brethren of all ages actually, but you're right, that adolescence sort of stage definitely. People who, you know, they've grown up in it they haven't chosen it for themselves so they they don't believe in it they they resist it they actually don't value it I think that's you know one of the huge challenges that like a group like the brethren doesn't actually recruit they only grow through reading <laughs> they don't do recruiting and I think it's because it's just too hard you know there are there's the random odd occasion person who's joined, but normally they were already of a very conservative Christian persuasion usually, and so it wasn't too big a jump. Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the challenges for a group like that that doesn't recruit is that many people have not actively chosen to be part of it. They were just simply born into it, which was true of my parents. And eventually, sure, at some point, people do choose to accept it and, and choose this, this is the way of life that I'm going to live by. But yeah, I think there are lots of people who either don't really believe in it or who or who live sort of double lives. There are a lot there are so many stories and I saw it when I was in there and so many stories now of people who are secretly doing all sorts of things that are not actually allowed. People who have got non-UBT devices that they hide whenever other brethren come around. People who go for holidays. Well you're not actually 
allowed to go on holidays, especially not like internationally, especially if you miss meetings. But yeah, there are people who do break the rules. Or, or the other thing they do is they find vices that are acceptable in the brethren. And one of those, for example, is alcohol. A, a lot of people think that because the brethren are really conservative Christians, that they probably wouldn't drink, that they'd be teetotalers. But actually, for many decades, there's been a strong drinking culture among the brethren where alcohol was very present in every household and very freely available at brethren social gatherings. It was encouraged. It's not just a little bit of drink on the side. It's a very present part of the culture in there. So that's a vice that's allowed. And so they, I think a lot of people make ready use of that. Alcohol was really present in our home, but it wasn't given to excess. It wasn't consumed in excess. And again, in, in, in a group like the brethren, where perceived purity and righteousness and wholesomeness is very important to them, things like any form of abuse or the underside, the underbelly of alcohol, and that is really taboo and really hidden away, in, you know, in my opinion. And so, yeah, whereas it, I think out here, at least a bit more, it's not so shameful anymore to be able to, you know, even just talk to your doctor and say, this is going on. I mean, it still it still does carry shame, definitely. But I I feel like in that hyper spiritual environment, well, it's it's a facade of hyper spirituality. It's even more taboo and even more shameful to acknowledge because for them, their whole thing again, going back to it, the core of it is that we are separate from evil. We're God's holy chosen people. That stuff happens to the worldly people. That was the term that we grew up calling outsiders worldlies. That stuff's out there with the worldlies. They're the wicked reprobate ones where evil things happen. We're the king's people. So there's this like, I think it adds a layer of difficulty to acknowledging and getting help. When we use the words highly controlled religious groups or often the word cult has been used in that scenario, people have it hand in hand with sexual assault. That's often one of the first questions that can get asked. And I know you shared a story with me earlier. It might be helpful for the audience to hear because it is, and I know that's what people often ask me when, they, when we're talking about this. They're like, do most people that grow up in a highly controlled group experience sexual assault? I'm like, I don't have those answers. I don't know. I've certainly worked with people that have have, but I've certainly worked with people that haven't as well. There have definitely been some studies done that do indicate there's a higher rate of sexual abuse and assault in these kind of high control environments. There's a woman called Dr. Jill A.B. Mitten, and she is a former exclusive brethren herself who completed her PhD um, only a few years ago. And uh, she wasn't actually looking specifically for that, but it came out in her results was that there so many of the people she interviewed, a really high rate of them had also experienced sexual assault. And I know there's been similar studies around, for example, you know, the question among the Catholic Church of, you know, why are so many priests been allegedly involved in being abusers? And so there's, the, yeah, there's been these questions of, you know, is there something about the environment that allows this kind of abuse to be fostered? Or does it create opportunities for predators to do their thing without being caught? I was going to say, or does it close down opportunities to get caught? Even, you know, maybe because abuse has no boundaries, right? And it has no borders, which is what my experience is. But is it that, you know, it's discouraged to have the next conversation with the doctor or the police or the nurse, potentially? I have no doubt about that. And to be honest, that's one of the things that concerns me about groups like the Brethren having their own private schooling system. Because often, and it's the same with other groups as well, or commune type living, is that they've just got such closed feedback loops, right? Like, you know, I'm friends with Liz Gregory, the, the woman who heads up the Gloryvale Leavers Support Trust. 
um, Gloria Vale is a, is a small commune on the west coast of New Zealand. And they've talked there about how even if kids or, or a woman or a man wants to report abuse, they don't have access to a device or a phone line to even call anywhere outside of the community. And they are also taught that if you know of anything, you go straight to an elder. You must go straight to an elder. And in my experience and the brethren, it's the same. Even at the school, it's if you know of abuse, sure, you might be encouraged to talk to a teacher, but the teacher is required to then go to the board and all of the board are brethren. And, you know, it just concerns me that sometimes it feels like, yeah, there's all these ceilings that are designed to keep information in the house. I don't want to be too negative. I sincerely hope and believe that those elders and teachers or anybody would do the right thing and would get that child or vulnerable person the support they need. And I, I would just love to hear stories where that has happened, where they've been encouraged to go to the police and get the right support. But unfortunately, there are many stories where um, former members allege that didn't happen, that they weren't encouraged to get right external support or help. And just going back in conversation a bit, Lindy, around we were talking about what happens if you resist, particularly if it's not something you've chosen. Like in this instance we're talking about, you're born into it. It's not you're recruited for it. I'd imagine through most people's lives there would be times that that vibrates that I don't want to be here, this wasn't my choice. What happens when someone starts resisting? What does it look like? Are they punished? Are they excluded? isolated, spoken to, left alone? Like what happens for someone? In my experience, if you have any doubts or any yeah desires that you don't want to be there, you, you have to keep them hidden because in the brethren to even doubt is seen as, a, as an act of betrayal. Whereas, you know, I've been part of other more mainstream churches out, outside and doubting and asking questions is encouraged. Like you're allowed to say, you know, I really don't understand. I'm not sure. I'm not convinced about the Trinity or, you know, whatever else it might be. You can ask questions about the doctrine, about the practices. You know, you know, is monogamy really in Scripture? You know, you can ask whatever. And I think a healthy environment is happy to allow questions and then have a really good discussion about it. Whereas I think that environments that are really focused on control they do not allow questioning and doubting is seen as the thin edge of the wedge or questions are seen as the thin edge of the wedge that, you know, might lead you away or might cause destabilization to that system and structure of beliefs and, and lifestyle. And so, yeah, so for me as a teenager, I didn't actually set out to leave the brethren. Like that wasn't my goal. There are certainly many people who go, yeah, this is not me, I don't believe in it, and I'm going to leave. Whereas for me, my pathway started through questioning. I thought, okay, if this is all real and if there really is a God and, and Bruce Howes is the man of God and, and all this stuff, like I just want to understand it more. I want to know what I believe. And so I began reading their Bible, the John Nelson Darby translation, so it's quite archaic with these and thous and all that sort of thing. But I began reading it, and then I began reading a lot of their leaders' teachings. I mean, we were actually told the ideal held out to us was to read the leaders' teachings for three hours a day. Well, nobody actually did that. Nobody actually did that. But I was like, okay, you know, I'm an idealistic young person. I've, you know, got energy to burn and I'm reasonably intelligent and curious and I'm going to throw myself into reading. So I began reading the leaders' teachings and reading their version of the Bible and like just the more I looked at it, the more questions I came up with, which is not what I expected. I thought I'd like 
find answers to my questions, be able to tie things up with neat little bows and go, this is why women can't do that. This is why men can't do that. This is why we live like this. Cool. I'll carry on and give my life to the system and, you know, be God's holy chosen person. But yeah, the opposite thing happened. But for me, that process was very private because for me to even be reading the leaders' teachings that intensively was seen as strange, especially for a young person. It was like, I knew that it was people would think I was taking it too seriously or like, you know, that I was, I don't know, that something was off. So I had to buy a briefcase. I had a locked briefcase. Yeah, probably more particularly as my questions started to get quite serious around what's this man of God thing that Bruce Howes is supposedly this like anointed manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And questions like that that I knew were really taboo, like you shouldn't even question that. So yeah, I had a notebook with my questions in it. And then I would like late at night, I would read the leader's stuff and the Bible and write these questions down. And it was a process for me of months. We don't have time to go into it all. But for me, it was the emperor's new clothes moment of, you know, that lovely little fable where the emperor has had clothes woven for him out of invisible silk because a deceitful tailor has told him, that only really intelligent people can see the fabric and can see the silk thread that he's used. And so this prideful emperor is strutting through the streets wearing what this tailor has told him is an amazing coat. And all of the people in the town have also been told, you know, that you can only see this if you're really intelligent. And so none of them want to admit that they can't see it. And it's a little boy who says, but he's got nothing on. And then everyone's like, shush, shush, shut up, don't say that, you're wrong. And for me, it was like that. It was just this moment of going, oh my gosh, I've just suddenly realized that I think this is this whole thing is a construct of lies, that there's nothing special about this leader, that he's not this divinely anointed manifestation of God. And it was absolutely horrifying because it was the realization that everyone around me, that my whole community was built on something that I had come to see was a facade, but that they were all deeply committed to defending. What did you do with that information? I can just imagine you as a young person working that out and then feeling like you're a deer in headlights. It's like, now what? (laughs) Like, now what do I do with that? Yeah, it was a profoundly earth-shattering realisation for me, in a, in a profoundly destabilizing, profoundly frightening. And I think the thing that really is the real kicker with groups like this, if groups like this practice social ostracism, or it's more commonly perhaps known as the Jehovah Witnesses use the term shunning, which has become more popularly understood. Brethren actually have a, their own unique phrase called withdraw from. They withdraw from you. Um, but essentially, it's it's extreme social shunning, and any group that practices that, it's such a great weapon in the arsenal for keeping people in and for destroying people who leave. Because, like human beings, are, <laughs> we know that we're you know we're innately social and tribal, and we need community. We need to love and be loved. We in in therapy over recent years, I've been learning more about attachment theory and just how profoundly important it is not only for babies like initially right it was discovered as being essential for babies and children's well-being yeah as I understand it in more recent years it's been explored more and more how profoundly important it is for adults to have healthy reliable safe loving affectionate attachments 
And I think something like social ostracism just completely annihilates all of that social attachment. And it's not only from your biological family, your parents and your siblings, but it's everyone. It's your grandparents, your cousins, your aunts, your 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 friends, people you grew up with. And in the case of the brethren, who you went to school with, who you saw every night, they all cut you out of their lives overnight. It's just utterly devastating. So what, when you say they cut you out of their lives overnight, literally what does that mean? What does it look like? Does it look like you just get left on the street? Does it look like they say to you, we're not speaking to you anymore? It can look like all of the above and their practices have, you know, there's some variation on the theme over the years because their story is going back decades because the brethren have practiced this for decades. So their story is going a long way back, including people just being, yeah, essentially put on the street. But yeah, I think, you know, to go a jump further back before the actual leaving and experiencing that is that, yeah, for me, that realisation of the Emperor's New Clothes moment, that immediately came with the realisation, if anyone discovers that I believe this, I'm going to experience excommunication and I'm going to lose everybody. And so it's it was terrifying because, yeah, it wasn't only the realisation that maybe everything I've believed is wrong. It was, yeah, the knowledge hand in hand with that, that if anybody finds out, I'm essentially socially dead. And that felt like staring death in the face. Like, because you cannot imagine life outside of the community. You've got no identity or life experience outside of that group because you haven't been recruited. You were born and raised. And so the prospect is absolutely terrifying. I mean, you've shared that you've got, you know, a high level of understanding of domestic violence. And, you know, one of the questions that people get there is why don't the woman just leave or, or the children just leave or whatever? And I imagine in some ways it's got a lot of overlap. It's like, well, if that's the only world you've known, if you were born and raised in a DV environment and then you ended up with a partner like that, like it's the only world you know, it's your normal. And so to even try and think of leaving, it's like jumping out of a plane into a black hole. You're terrified to stay and yet you're terrified to go. There's this amazing quote at the end of the hand. Maid's Tale. I read The Handmaid's Tale recently and I just found it so excruciating because it was just way too close to the bone. But what a powerful book. And it finishes with the woman leaving this intense environment that she's been part of. And she says, whether this is my end or a new beginning, I have no way of knowing. I have given myself over into the hands of strangers because it can't be helped. And so I step up into the darkness or else the light. And oh, that's just such a powerful quote. And that that's what it feels like. You're like, I'm having to step out of here and give myself over to strangers. Who you've been told are evil. Yeah, that was the really traumatizing period for me was from that moment on. And then going on, going out to the meetings, living in a haze in a daze, going, if they discover that I'm doubting that Bruce House is the man of God. Yeah, it, it means that everything you're living with it is like it's hard to describe you're you're looking at your family you're taking photos of them because you're going if they discover I'm out this might be my last opportunity to be seeing you know my nephew or my niece or my last time that I have a cup of tea with my grandma like it's this really surreal feeling it's really hard to describe there's not a lot else like it other than I think there's some similarities with like a refugee leaving their country or something, even though you're in the same country and your language stays the same. Because people, all of us in there, you, all of you have had someone disappear from your life. Like when I was eight, I had a beloved aunt who just disappeared. And I was told it was fornication. 
as a child. I didn't know what that meant. I knew it was really wicked. And she'd just vanished. And she used to come around every week for and help our family out. And she just disappeared. You know, I had a grandfather who I'd never, ever known. We were not allowed to see photos of him. We were not allowed to talk about him. He was wicked. And he had disappeared. And so you know that this is what's going to happen to me. They're going to take the photos of me off the wall of the family home. They're going to erase me out of their church directory. They're never going to speak about me again. And you know, because again, it's happened, that I might die having never seen any of them again. Like, it's really extreme. And yet, you know, stop me if I'm ranting too much here. It's really extreme behavior. And yet these are lovely, clean-shaven people who look very normal who might be living next door to you. These are people who rub shoulders in the business world with ordinary other Australians and New Zealanders every day and they often do a good job at business. They're often kind to their employees and employers. You know, they might take out the rubbish bin of their neighbour. They there are other aspects of what they do in their lives that are very ordinary and very decent and very normal. That's where I think that this whole subject of religious groups and religious freedoms and all of that gets so difficult because it's just really not black and white you know they're they're not Jim Jones sitting in a corner encouraging people to drink Kool-Aid they're not amassing arms in their garages and yet yet some of their practices are in my opinion very very harmful and concerning. Lindy I'm thinking back to you in that moment when you discovered that and you have just described that so well, you know, as I was hearing it, I had tears in my eyes and I was just, you know, thinking firstly, the courage that it must have taken to leave. Like that was what, and I get teary just saying that out loud. Like, I don't know how you did it. Like, I don't know how you walked away from that. So I guess I'm wondering what did that look like? You know, was it weeks, months, years? Did you just go one day? What was your experience in that space? I mean, people often do say what you just said that well, that must have taken courage, but like, I'll be completely honest with you. I felt totally forced out and I felt pushed out and it wasn't, you know, my, my recollection of it is that my parents came to me and said, they asked those questions like around, do you believe in Bruce Hales? And I, which is a a phrase they have, you know, just like someone else out here who's a Christian might say, do you believe in God? Well, they say, do you believe in Bruce Hales? And I had to say, no, and my recollection is that my parents said then there is no place for you under our roof. How old were you? I was 20. <sighs> 20 years, two decades. Yeah, and I had, there are others who, like I said, have planned for it or who, have, who are adults or who, you know, even just things like have their own car or a significant, you know, amount in their bank. Yeah, whereas, like I said, I was 20. I wasn't planning for this. It's just where my questioning had led me. And I was absolutely terrified and I was, absolutely devastated at the prospect of losing everyone I loved like I I I was psychologically devastated I look back and I think I was probably completely having some kind of a nervous breakdown no one tells you that and they don't tell you that and I you know wasn't talking to a doctor or didn't have a therapist or anything but you know like I remember trying to mechanically force myself to pack my bags just you know dragging myself to pack my things up and then just lying staring at the ceiling like just you know it's it's hard to describe you you can't process what's happening and it feels like you're planning your own suicide like I I I was writing goodbye letters to my aunts and uncles my family my friends my siblings because I was going 
I'm never going to see them again. And I don't even know if they're going to read this letter from me now because I'm wicked now. But it's my last attempt to communicate with them, you know. It was really, really distressing. But what I did was I used a calling card because the brethren aren't going to help you to leave. Like they don't, they don't want you to leave. So they're not going to help you. Normally they don't help a leaver find accommodation or find a new job. You know, they don't want you to succeed. They want you to stay. So it's all up to you, even though you're in this place of absolute devastation. So, yeah, I used a calling card from, you know, a dairy because I didn't want the number to be traceable on our home phone. And because I didn't have a mobile phone or anything at that stage. And I, back in the day, I don't know if you guys have it in Australia, but there used to be a number you could ring and you would give the name of someone and you would ask and then you'd pay 50 cents or something and they would give you the phone number for that name. It's like the white pages. I don't know if you call it white pages in Australia, but online. Now it's all online. You just do it online. Whereas back then you had to ring a number. It was like, you know, telecom or a phone company, pay your fee, and then they would give you this number. So my elderly nana had told me about her daughter who had got kicked out in her 20s. And my nana had told me her name. So I'd never had a conversation with her because obviously she was one of these disappeared people. But my nana had told me her name. and. So I used this calling card to contact her, and I also tried to contact the other aunt I mentioned who who left when I was eight, but I couldn't. She wasn't living in the country, so yeah, they gave me her name, which thankfully her name hadn't changed, and so I could track her down. And I called her, and I was terrified because, of course, I believed she was evil, and I I wasn't actually thinking I'd have anything to do with her. I just thought I'd, you know, that was the only thing I could think of to do was to contact her. And I was so scared. And I thought she was really wicked. And, you know, I remember trembling sort of, and she answered the phone. And I said, I'm, you know, I said my father's name, which is her, her brother. And I said, I'm I'm his child. And I'm they're making me leave the brethren. And she just burst into tears. And she was, oh, yeah, and she was just so lovely, like, And I couldn't believe how lovely she was. And she was actually a Christian. So she then said this, like, she said a Bible verse or something to me. Well, we were taught that if you leave the brethren, you will lose your faith and that you're no longer saved. So I was like, this is confusing. Anyway, she said, I can't help you because she, her living situation at that time. But she said, my son lives in Auckland. He has a car. He'll come and collect you and he will help you find a place to live. So this was a first cousin of mine. He was my age. I'd never heard of him, didn't know his name. And anyway, so to cut a long story short, he teed up a family to take me in, a lovely older couple who had had borders before. And the the man was actually a drug and alcohol counsellor and the woman was a nurse. So they had a high level of people experience. They were in their 50s and they said, yeah, we we can, you know, take a high needs border in. Um, (laughs) And so, yeah, to cut a long story short, they eventually came and picked me and my bags up. You know, it was a terrible day. I said goodbye to my family. My grandparents came around to say goodbye to me and my recollection is that the priests were there, although I'm not sure if they were there a day before or, or something else. But And, you know, to this day, I have not seen most of them ever again. I can't imagine it, Lindy, as you're saying, and I can't, I'm wiping away my tears, but I just, I cannot imagine what that would have been like for you as a 20-year-old on so many levels. And for you to sit here today and say you still haven't seen them, you know, like the question that comes up for me, rightly or wrongly, is can you 
drive back to where they live and see them? Or is it that they won't talk to you? Or that curiosity part of me and that kind of my little naughty part of my child would be like, I'm just going to drive and watch. I'm just going to go look at them. But is that not something that came up for you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I've tried multiple times to see them and and to communicate with them. And every year for it's just gone 15 years since I left. Every year for 15 years, I've written to each of my siblings and my parents and my grandparents twice a year each. And I'll send photographs of my life and my family. I've pretty much never heard from any of them apart from my parents have replied on occasion. And it's usually very a very antagonistic communication around and it's usually got stuff in there like you're in Satan's realm you need to come back here to the light to to where God wants you and you know it's laden with all that type of language of of their worldview because in their worldview that's what's happened I've gone out to the kingdom of darkness so could you go back oh, I don't well you you can go back if you say that you believe Bruce House is the man of God because you can't live in there half-heartedly. You have to believe everything they believe. You have to live as they believe. So to go back in, you would have to bow the knee to take on that level of conformity again. And you would have to agree to cut off everybody in your life now. Like I would be encouraged to leave my husband. Could your husband come with you? Is there, can I, you? I, only if he also would completely choose to believe in and live by everything you know I've heard of Jehovah's Witnesses that allow marriages where one's a Jehovah's Witness and another one's not the brethren don't allow that you have to be it's all or nothing and so yes I could go and knock on the door yet there have been times when I've tried to do that but people don't either don't open the door or yeah once I went to see my grandparents and you know very awkward conversation on the steps they would not invite me inside they wouldn't hug me you know, they're, they're torn as well because they're torn between, you know, they do have some affection for you, but they are taught, they're fearful as well. They're taught that you are, they're taught that former members are poisonous and, and that we'll, you know, poison them. It's so hard. Like, it, uh, you know, not knowing your story, I can imagine it's always difficult, but choosing to leave versus feeling like you've been forced out because you had questions is a whole nother level again, you know, like it wasn't by the sounds of it, you weren't saying, I want to go. You were saying, hang on a second. Can you explain this to me? This doesn't make sense. This isn't like adding up, like, you know, this, this space of like, I need more information here. And as soon as that came in, it's like, well, you're gone. Yeah, that's right. That, I totally agree. I, th- I think the real kicker, it's this it's this shunning thing, the social ostracism thing, because nobody would ever choose to have their family shun them and ostracize them. And that's where it gets so challenging with, it's so interesting with religious groups again and religious idealism and stuff is, yeah, what do you do? I mean, previously to the the Brethren only brought in their strict social separation in about 1960, 1970s. And before that, they would have one spouse who was a Catholic and one who was a Brethren, or they would have, you know, their non-believing elderly grandmother living in the family home or whatever, you know, and they could belong to associations and go to universities. They weren't so strict. You know, they were still fairly extreme with some things, but even people who are still fairly conservative Christians who have left the Brethren and who have gone on to still be quite conservative and who might in many ways live a lifestyle very similar to the Brethren. The Brethren will still not allow any communication with that person. And, you know, so it's quite confusing really because it's not really, it's not actually about 
a person's morality or their belief in God per se. It's about whether or not you will bow the knee to Bruce Hales. And it's whether or not you say that he is this divine man of God. What happened for you after that? After you went to live with this couple, like I'm just thinking about that rebuild and that learning who you are in a world that you haven't known and in making sense of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, oh my gosh, you know, I feel like we could talk for hours here about We can, we can. We're not going anywhere. I'm like, I looked at the clock and I was like, this conversation is not over. (laughs) Yeah, because that's like, whoa, that's the first half and then the second half is, I would say for me in the first few weeks and months after leaving, I was very raw and I was very broken. I was going through immense grief and it's it's quite a funny sort of grief because, and it took me a long time, and I think it took a long time for therapists to realize that's what it was because people haven't died, you know, and so it was hard to find language or resources for what was going on. It wasn't until a few years on and I discovered grief resources and I, I realized this, what people are describing here, this is exactly what I've been going through these last few years. Like it's it's all these little things like hearing a funny joke that my brother would have loved and just immediately thinking of him and being overwhelmed with grief and tears or longing for a hug from my mother or seeing a lovely little 10-year-old girl skipping down the street and just being awash with grief at the loss of losing my little sister or you know it's they were all things that a person people I've come across who talk about grief they were things that I was experiencing but it was not just with one person and it wasn't to an external force that took them away like cancer or a drowning it was like they have actively chosen to be dead to me and so that came with this deep you know, like I talked earlier about the attachment wound where, you know, hand in hand, this grief and loss is with this very powerful, deep attachment rejection of you are out of our nest. And, you know, I, I've got, you know, one story. It shows you what it's like. I went back a few weeks after leaving to collect some more of my things. And my mother met me at the door and I tried, I was trying really hard to look for something that wasn't to do with all the pain and all the controversy to say to her, to try and, you know, reach over the divide and throw a line of friendship, you know, and and connection because she loved animals and nature. And so did I. And I had a dovecote out the back of the house with some pigeons that had babies. And I knew they had babies at that exact time that I had been leaving. And I said to her, how are the baby pigeons doing, mum? And she just looked at me and, and, you know, in retrospect, she was, profoundly awash in her own grief and pain and anger but she just looked at me and she said they fell out of the nest and they died just like you and it was like oh my gosh you know that that just wounded me so deeply and yet to her that was what had happened I had fallen out of the nest and I was as good as dead To go back to your question about what's it like in the first few weeks and months, like, yeah, I really struggled. I tried to hold down a couple of jobs and I found it really hard to, you know, get up and get dressed and go out there and put a brave face onto the world. Well, like we haven't even mentioned, just going back one step, Lindy, like you're talking about grief and you're talking about the people. You also were grieving the community. You were also grieving the life that you knew. You were also grieving the structure that made you feel safe and secure And like, if I was going to grieve now, I grieve in an environment that I know. 
You're grieving in an environment that you don't know. Like every part of your world had been tipped upside down and then torn apart. Like harrowing is the word that I keep, keeps coming to mind for me. Mm, it is harrowing. You're exactly right. Like I, I remember walking into this couple's house and they showed me a bedroom and they said, you know, this is your room. And they looked at me and said, put your pictures on the walls and put your things away in the drawers. And they also said to me, you don't have to pay board until you get a job. Well, those things floored me because we were taught that everyone on the outside wasn't to be trusted and wasn't kind and was out to fleece you. So I couldn't believe that. And I didn't quite trust it too, to be honest. And then, you know, another thing they did that was beautiful after a few days or weeks, I must have told them about how the family would be taking down all the photos of me from around the house. And I came home one day and they'd printed out a picture of me and they'd stuck it on their fridge. It was so beautiful, and it's still there to this day. And I look back at that, and I think it was things like that that showed me signs of they were like the ropes that were going out to me when I was, like, drowning in the sea and saying, we're going to pull you in. We're here. Yeah, we're here for you. And, And it still took, I actually lived with them for about five years, and I'd say it still took me two, three years before I stopped expecting them to kick me out as well, I kept sort of thinking, they're just going to wake up one day like my family did and say, we don't like what you did. We don't like what you believe. There's the door. That's your experience. Yeah, you don't, when the very people, your parents and your family, they're the ones who are supposed to be there for you thick or thin. When they have rejected you, you, you're constantly expecting everybody else to do that to you at some stage as well. Anyway, but yeah, so you're also like a kid, you know, on the flip side, you're like a kid in a candy store, like you're so excited because there's all these things to do that you've never been able to do before. The discovery, the discovery of like, I can wear different clothes, I can talk to these, I can sit at lunch with people. As scary as it is, it's almost this exploring of the world, like a toddler learning to walk. It's totally like going through a delayed adolescence of like, oh my gosh, you know, I can you know, I, and I did. I, I went clubbing and I went dumpster diving and I went to a rugby game. And Did you say dumpster diving? Yeah. Do yeah. I need to clarify what that means? <laughs> you probably do. I, I came across some people who were like, come on, you know, we go around, no young people who were like, we go around the skips in town at night behind the bakeries and the like food, the supermarkets, and we get out free food that the supermarkets have thrown away. Because, you know, it's like a pack of yogurt, six pack of yogurt, and one's got damaged yeah. and the rest of them are fine. Yeah, and they were like, Come, yeah, I remember that because that, that was so shocking to me. Hey, um, hey, yeah, <laughs> you're like, we're doing what? <laughs> but it was, it was really fun and just, and it was so inane, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't wicked and wild or anything. I mean, I think it technically is illegal actually, but yeah, it's, it's, yeah, just so many things. And, and then for me as well, because I'd had no technology in my life, like, the Breton didn't bring that on until I left. So there was the whole world of technology to wrap my head around. And it was little things like I remember, I just think I was so excited by so many little things. I remember sitting with this couple watching TV in the news for one of the first times and seeing the weather report. It showed, you know, New Zealand with the swirls of cloud coming around and the rain coming down, like, you know, like they show it what's it called like virtual you know virtual showing what the weather systems are doing and I was just like oh my gosh look at that that's so cool it's so amazing being able to see that because I'd never ever seen the weather on tv 
And so it was exciting to me. <laughs> so it's, I'm thinking about like I remember the first time someone really close to me that had just gotten out of a violent relationship, we'd gone to the supermarket and she was choosing a toothbrush and she was just like, this is amazing. I can pick my colour. I can pick how much I want to spend on it and over a toothbrush. And I was like, yeah, this is the small things, the small things that are so different to the life that you've known. Yeah, that you've known. Yeah, yeah. Like 15 years isn't long. Like when we put it in perspective, it was part of your world for 20 years and you're 15 years post, like less time post than you were in. What is your world like now? What are the things that come up for you now? I know that's a big question, a very loaded question, but what is it like for you now? Yeah, on the whole, life is life is fantastic. I feel like I've got a very privileged life. There's lots of joy in it, lots of good people in it. I've rebuilt a new community, new family and friends, new people to be my my parents and grandparents to my children. And or when I say I've built it, they're just beautiful people have welcomed me into their lives, you know. So I feel so grateful, profoundly grateful for that there. Yeah, and, I, and I'm married and I've got two young kids. So sort of got that family unit there as well, which it's an amazing, it's an amazing gift. Yeah, I've done various different jobs. I actually did a degree in theology because I wanted to explore about yeah religious beliefs and in particular the Christian religion which I found really helpful for unpacking more of what the brethren taught and seeing that actually much of what they live by is quite different to what a lot of mainstream Christians hold and yeah so done a bunch of things like that but I do think there's this shadow that you live with when when you've left a high control group and you know it's for a number of reasons one is that it's always of course going to be a significant part of your life and if you grew up in it the life that shaped you you know it's always going to be with you and then there's the reality that you're left with scars and the scars for me are more around what happened through leaving rather than necessarily childhood things like there are some people who have experienced quite major abuses growing up as well for me, I didn't have that. It's it's more, I think, yeah, that shattering experience of being excommunicated and losing my family. That's trauma right there. That it, is it's like trauma. Yeah. earth shattering trauma, soul shattering, identity shattering, every aspect of human connection was broken. Yeah, you're right. I know I've talked to uh, an older man because he's often men, people who have got children and grandchildren and businesses who get excommunicated from the brethren. And I remember one of them saying that his doctor, because he was having a nervous breakdown, and his doctor said to him, you've lost your business, your employment, your, you've lost your wife, you've lost your parents, you've lost your children, your grandchildren, you've lost your family home. Like he said, you've lost everything in the space of a few days. And his doctor was saying to him, yeah, often if one person loses any one of these things, we would call it a crisis, but you've lost everything. And yeah, I think that's right. It's But it's bizarre because on the other hand, you know, I don't have physical scars. It's like that classical thing when you're when you're carrying a major internal wound, but it's not visible on the on the outside. And when I can still talk and function, you know, like I've got a couple of friends who say to me, I oh, forget that you've had this whole thing, that you live with this whole thing. Because on the surface, you know, you function normally in many ways. But I do think for me, I personally have come to believe that I think that nearly everyone who's experienced severe social shunning has been left with complex PTSD. I can't imagine that you can't be left with that, you know? Well, that's interesting for me to hear you say that because I think 
one of the other challenging things is that in New Zealand anyway, many therapists have no experience and no understanding of, of all this. And so they don't tell you that. And they, it's, it's taken me over a decade before finally I've found therapists experienced in trauma in particular who have said, oh, all these things, all these symptoms that you're currently living with that keep, keep popping up in your life, you know, oh, it's not just a bit of anxiety or a bit of grief. No, I'm horrified that's, that hasn't been your experience. I, and I've heard lots of former members say that is that therapists, if they don't understand the level of, yes, of, coercive of the background and of coercive control and what it's done to you and and it's, yeah, it's down to so many tiny things. Like another story I remember about probably five years ago or 10 years ago now, you know, just sitting in a car with some men and they were talking about something. And one of them said to me, what do you think, Lindy? And me just being like shocked that a man you, would ask me, me for my opinion. <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. asking? You're what do asking? I do with that? What do yeah. I say? What do I like? What, how, there's so many things would run through your mind before you answer. Yeah, it's these tiny little things that because of your shaping and your experience, you know, growing up for me, women were not asked for their opinion. And and so it's, just, yeah, there's just like multiple things that. But what happens with that is it's not just that moment in time. There's a ripple effect. You know, like when you put a stone across the water and it yep. like bounces a few times. So I'd imagine that there's that moment in time, but then there's the language that happens inside your head after that moment. Did I answer correctly? Why did they do that? What did that mean from my part? And then there's the grief. Then there's the complex grief of, why have I not experienced this before? And then there's the reminder that I've got a whole family that I'm not taught. Like it's this stone like skipping across the water and every time it hits the water there's a ripple effect of like lines that come out from that that vibrates in your life that people don't realise. They think it's the one stone hitting the water the one time and that's it and it goes down to the bottom of the ocean. That's right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I do think that's a real challenge for former members is that it's not just that there was this one momentous crisis back you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 40 years ago. It's also that, yeah, then you're you're living with ongoing wounds of that. And then there's this whole thing that, oh my gosh, your family's not actually dead. They're still over here and you might bump into one of them in the street one day, or maybe like my aunt, in 30 years time, you're going to get a phone call from a frightened 20-year-old saying, can you help me? Or, you know, I know I'm going to get the call one day if my mum gets sick or is dying and I have to cross that bridge of what does this, and it's very awkward for these groups when those moments turn up like death because the outsiders want to be told and they want to be able to say goodbye to their family member. But often you haven't seen that person for decades and there's all this pain and this huge divide there. And yet there's just all these messy things like that that don't go away and they keep popping up and you don't really know when. And we also haven't spoken about the fear that your life could stop tomorrow. As in, I would imagine that there is still pockets of time where you're like, is this all going to go? Like, is my new life going to disappear? Yes. Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. You do live with that. Yeah, yeah. I, I said that to my husband the other day. I was like, because he's never experienced major trauma. And I said to him the other day, there's a part of me that's always just waiting to wake up and, and go have a similar experience and go, do I believe everything I used to believe? Is, is everything I knew safe to trust still or not? You know, is it going to be here tomorrow or not? Yeah. You live with that fear. Is the world a safe place or not? Yeah. 
I want to ask you so many more questions, but I also know that you've started the Olive Leaf Network and I think it's really important that we have a conversation around that because you're doing some beautiful work and there are many, many, many people that are going to be crossing the same bridge that you crossed. It might look, The scenery might look mm. different, but mm. they're going to be walking the footsteps behind you and you're carving out this pathway for them and of support and understanding and we're here with you beside you in this. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're doing now? Yes, I'd love to. And it's actually, it's such a joy to talk about that because, yeah, I do feel like particularly for the first decade after leaving, I was very focused on trying to rebuild and trying to find my feet and to recover and and all that sort of thing. And over the last four to five years in particular, I've felt, wow, I'm so privileged to be in a place now where I have got good support and I have got a good level of recovery and understanding of what happened to me and, and that you know, how can I not want to share that with others? Yeah, that was a key part of the motivation really was um, actually was that a, a, one of my brothers suddenly left and then a couple of years later, my father suddenly got excommunicated, which was really unforeseen because he was very devoted to the whole thing. Yeah, seeing them, my beloved family members, go through the trauma again just brought it so close to home and made me realise this is still happening, you know, all well and good for me that I've been able to move on and build a new community and everything but wow there are sort of so-called fresh bodies falling from the bus you know (laughs) and that that something has to be here for them and yeah New Zealand's the scene here is quite interesting with regard to this kind of thing because internationally particularly around the 60s and 70s there was obviously a huge culty type groups or commune type groups of a variety of spiritual beliefs but that were springing up and and then some of those did result in the extreme stuff like the Jim Jones thing and all of that back then in in America and in England and in Australia concerned parents in particular it was usually parents had set up charitable entities like International Cultic Studies Association or yeah there's a number of them actually in England and America Entities, charitable entities to support people who are caught up in cult-like groups and to support their families and to support them when they leave. Whereas New Zealand, to my research and knowledge, just simply never had anybody actually set up an entity to do that. There's been on occasion a couple of websites or like, yeah, loose informal support type groups, but there's no legally set up charitable entity to support this. Or And sometimes these groups like liaise with governments and you know, and things like that. But yeah, New Zealand hasn't had that. And so it was like, you know, holy heck, about time, let's do this, you know, and I'm a networker, I think that I've got the right connections and support to help get this off the ground. So that was what we've done. We launched the Olive Leaf Network earlier this year. You know, the name is probably quite personal to me in a way, I, I, I do hope that, you know, my dream is for us to be able to support people leaving any kind of religious group. But obviously, that name, can have some connection with the Noah's Ark story in Genesis in the, in the Christian Bible where Noah is in the boat and then the little dove brings back a leaf to him. But I just love, I'm a person who loves metaphor and images and stories, and I love that image because I thought that little bird didn't do much. It couldn't do everything, but it brought hope. It, that little leaf was a symbol that, hey, you're totally at sea at the moment in the storm and the floods. But there's land ahead, there's green stuff ahead, there's flourishing ahead, like the olive leaf symbolizes 
prosperity and flourishing and food and oil and, you know, all the good things. And the photo that got put on the fridge. Yeah, it represents so much more than just what the image is. Yeah, and to me that's the olive leaf. It's like I feel tiny compared to the power of these groups, and I am. But And so is the Olive Leaf Network. But, you know, we can offer people hope. We can't sort out their whole journey for them, but we can definitely say to people, this is not the end of your story. There's, yeah, there, there is solid land ahead and you're going to make it. So so that's that's the name. And, yeah, we our three aims are aid for former members or people who are thinking of leaving. So that can be very practical, like helping people find accommodation, helping to set them up with the professional support they need, like therapists or legal advice or helping write a CV. We also do advocacy work with them. Like sometimes, for example, when you've been gone through extreme social ostracism, you don't have someone to come with you to a medical appointment or you don't have someone to sit with you through a really difficult court case or whatever. So we provide that sort of advocacy friendship social support and I don't do that just alone I network and we're building our network of sometimes they're former members sometimes they're just generally kind concerned citizens or people who have you know neighbors people have seen the reality of this and who want to help and support and the last thing we do is awareness raising about the reality of these experiences and and that these things are happening in our suburbs and in our neighbours and in our towns, that it's not just over there in a commune on the West Coast or it's not just over there with the wacky 12 tribes group. It's like, hey, this can be happening right next door to you. And sometimes it looks like your everyday, you know, and I think that really resonates when I think about domestic violence as well. We often don't see it. It's our neighbour, our cousin, our, you know, teacher. Like so true. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah, it's and it can be so hidden. Yeah, that, that oh my gosh, it's actually really interesting hearing you with that context and hearing the similarities. Like group coercive control is very similar to individual or domestic coercive control. But yeah, it's really interesting to talk with you who's experienced in that and to hear you validate that the similarities there. Yeah. Yeah. So many similarities, except it's on a grander scale and it has witnesses, you know, like the behavior you walk past is the behavior you accept. So when you're in an environment where there's lots of people accepting the behavior, it moves the dial on your touch with reality even more. Oh, it clearly in my head because no one else is reacting here. Oh my gosh, that's fascinating. That's like the Emperor's New Clothes thing, right? Mm, like it's like, exactly. Oh, everyone else believes that this is acceptable to treat someone like this. So therefore, it must be. Yeah. Who am I to think differently, you know? Or it's all in my head or, yeah, yeah. So, but also you're starting, you've just reached across to Australia as we well. Have, you're starting yeah. the foundation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really stoked about that. Yeah. There's a wonderful woman called Laura Dyerson, who's also a former member of the Exclusive Brethren. And she has just a couple of months ago launched a, like basically a sister entity, Olive Leaf Network Australia. And yeah, I'm really thrilled about that. And Australia is similar to New Zealand in that it's it's a bit more ahead in that there's a wonderful group called Cult Information Family Support or CIFs. And they have been around since I think the 70s. And again, they were set up by parents initially who were really concerned about recruiting. But that's Australia's only other recovery from cult kind of related group. And again, I just think that's astonishing with a population the size of Australia to only have CAFs and then a very fledgling olive leaf network because we know that these groups are all across Australia. And, you know, I joined in a call with a Zoom call, a support group with CAFs a month or two ago. And there, I was quite interested, there are about three or four sets of parents there, absolutely devastated. All of them have, just within the last year or two, lost 
intelligent young adults to recruitment to the group called Shin Tionji. Don't know if you've heard of them. They're another Christian fringe group with some quite extreme and unorthodox beliefs. They've been very active. They're the most active recruiting group in Australia and New Zealand at the moment. Some of their members are spending over 20 hours a week recruiting and they're very successful. And these parents are just devastated because then they teach them to shun their family members and all that sort of thing. These parents are lost their kids. And a lot of that's happening at universities, isn't it? The kids yeah. are going to uni and then, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's uni, but it can happen anywhere. Like one former member recently told me that she would go to the aisles of Kmart and just strike up conversations with people in, in shopping malls in the aisles of Kmart. And I was just like, what? Like, you're not even safe at Kmart? It's a whole nother conversation, isn't it, when you start talking about recruiting? You know, like we've had a lot of conversation about when you are born into the scenario versus when someone taps you on the shoulder and it's like, hey, welcome to my world. Come along. Let's, you know. And I know I spoke a lot about that in episode 51 with Tim Elliott when it was called Being Controlled by a Highly Religious Sect. And we talked a lot about 12 tribes he's got a podcast that's called inside the tribes and it it was really eye-opening for me to have that conversation with him but it's really interesting having our conversation today because it's so different there's lots of similarities but it's also so different this whole time I've been listening just 150 questions running through my head I wish I could talk all day because it's just when you said earlier around you know that could be your neighbor your boss your teacher the thing is we often don't have conversations about it. There's not a common language. There's not a dialogue that's in society around it. And, and often people don't know how to ask, what to ask, or if they do ask, they often ask things that might be disrespectful or unhelpful or triggering. Or So it's kind of like we just there's not even a dialogue in society to ask or to know who to ask or when to ask or what to ask. It's like it's worse to talk about than politics, like religious or spiritual beliefs. Yeah. I mean, I'm just remembering as we're talking about recruiting, I just recently watched that there's been a recent short documentary on this twin flag thing I don't know if you've heard of it it's quite fascinating because it's an online cult-like group that has made again got a guru at the center a, a couple who are like raking in money by promising people to find their one true soulmate it fascinates me because they're doing it nearly all online like they're recruiting their community building everything I guess what I'm saying is it's very easy I think for people to think oh that's yeah, none of my business, that didn't happen to me, or it's not It's not something that I'm at risk of, it's over there. I guess it's the same with DV, you think, oh, like, it's it's a bit awkward and uncomfortable to bring up, and it's over there, it, it doesn't affect me, and I, how on earth could you ever ask a neighbour or a friend if you were concerned about that? And yet, in some ways, we need to learn to do that, don't we? Like, if we are concerned about someone, what are the gentle ways that we can raise it with them? Because it actually is, I think, more everywhere than we like to think just like DV. Absolutely. And before we finish up, I guess I'm thinking about someone out there that might be listening to this conversation today. Perhaps they're thinking that they might want to create change. Maybe they're not quite there yet. You know, maybe there's just a sense, but they haven't quite actually said the words out loud, even in their own head that they want to change. What would you say to them? Or what have you learned over the time that could be helpful in this scenario? One of the things I do reflect about is the whole concept of change and how difficult change is, even when it's change that we know is good for us, or even when it's change that we've chosen it can still be incredibly hard, especially if you're talking about changes that are really significant that, yeah, might involve change in your core relationships, change in your job, change in your living situation. I don't know, you know, whether it's just me or it's human beings in general, but it does seem like we find change often quite hard. And 
Yeah, I was just reflecting that for anybody who's sort of sitting in that situation where you might be wanting change and wanting a different life, but you're afraid of the change, I, yeah, I guess I'd encourage you to think about that stuff like what are the costs of staying and what are the costs of going and what is the pain of going versus the pain of staying because yes, it can be painful to change and it can be really painful to go through things like ostracism and rebuilding your life and yet look at the long term, look at the bigger picture because in my view, I guess it's that short-term pain for long-term gain saying but in my view the pain of going through with that change is better to endure that than to keep living in the pain of staying we spoke a little bit about that at the start and I was saying it's like choosing the hill you die on they both are big hills like you know it's hard to know which one sometimes it is hard it it can be really hard to stay and really hard to go and yeah which one is going to be your story yeah and to think about the long-term effects of that like if you're a person who yeah does have children in there or and I don't encourage people to leave that's you know that decision is up to them because for some people it might not be the right thing to leave it might be better to stay and keep enduring the costs that are in there but for whatever other reason it might be uh, it might be that it's actually better for that, that person to stay but yeah just to just to think through those things and I think yeah to have courage to to make the choice to change even if it's painful if that is the right decision for you to yeah take that next step do you wish you were still in the community no I don't you know it's definitely not the rosy holy happy community that they can portray themselves to be it's yeah really flawed and a real mixed bag like I suppose a lot of communities but no I don't I don't miss being part of that community there there are other ways to find other healthy positive communities that are not so controlling or toxic or damaging when you leave had the story been written differently when you left and you still had contact with your family and were able to create a life this could be a completely different conversation this could be like this is something that I grew up with it's not the way I choose now I took a lot from it but there's this period of time in your life that we spoke about that was harrowing it didn't need to be like that it didn't need to have that extremely high cost Yeah. Yeah. And so, Lindy, if someone is thinking about it, what would be one step that they could take? I encourage people to talk to their doctor alone, you know, make sure that no one's with you. Um, I encourage people, if possible, if they're able to, to set up a relationship with a professional support person like a therapist. I also encourage people to find at least one other safe person who they feel like they can talk to. Because nearly everybody's got, you know, someone in the desk next to them at work, even if they're part of a brethren or, you know, even if they work in that group, there's often someone in their sphere or a neighbour or a school teacher. There's often people who remember a school teacher they felt safe with. So yeah, reach out to a doctor, try and build a relationship with a therapist and try to find one other safe person outside of the community who you can talk with. And, you know, last but not least, I'd say look on the Olive Leaf Network website because we've got lots of resources there, especially our booklet called Thinking of Leaving, which is like a guide to lots of the different things that you need to think about as you prepare to leave. Obviously, if that website's banned from your device, then that's a challenge, but go down to the library or get another device and try and access it. Yeah, so those are some fairly achievable steps that people can start to try and do. We have spoken about this before on the podcast, but I think it's really important that we honour this space is that 
different therapists for different times in your life and different therapists for different people. And, you know, same as school teachers, school teachers might get trained up in maths or science or junior school or high school therapists are the same. So my background was in trauma therapy. So potentially why, you know, when we were having the conversation, you're like, oh, it's good to hear that. It's because that's where I sat, like a maths teacher sits in maths. But, you know, there's plenty of areas that I have no scope over. I think often we think that therapists, psychologists, counsellors, understand the human mind across all everything and that's not always the case so you know when I'm speaking to people particularly around things that like trauma even specifically sexual trauma or domestic violence or high controlling religious groups there might be therapists that specialize in that yeah definitely in that and really niche down market and and what that's going to mean is they may have a better understanding they may have more resources in their toolkit they may just have a more breadth of knowledge and insights to be able to hold space and to be able to pull some of those resources out yes i agree and what i found in new zealand i don't know if australia is similar but is that often therapists, because it is still a bit of an unknown field here for some reason, therapists often don't say, oh, I specialize in post-cult recovery or in support from high-demand religious groups. But what they instead, if you look for, yeah, as you said, if you look for people who specialize in trauma, they can nearly always translate that over to the trauma of the situation. Or um, yeah, I've found attachment stuff really, really helpful. Grief and loss or like faith crises or life crises yeah, if you look for kind of those keywords, those therapists are usually a good starting place. Yeah. And we had two girls on. They have a podcast called Good Morning, M-O-U-R, Good Morning. They talk a lot about grief and they also have a new book that's come out that is so good. And so if anyone is wow. is curious about that grief space, even if it's grief from trauma, there's some really good resources there as well. I love to finish every episode with asking who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh. Such a good question. You know what, the thing that really makes me, I'm not sure always a belly laugh, but I get a lot of giggles from, I've got a little border terrier dog, and I don't know if you know what they are, but they're scruffy, they're feisty, they're very curious, and she makes me giggle because she's just she's just wacky, and yeah, I love her enthusiasm for life, and it makes me giggle because it's like, yeah, if you know, if a lizard runs across the path, she's like right in there, she'll hop up onto people's laps, even if they're not expecting it, so there'll be someone sitting there with a cup of tea, and then there'll just be this dog in their face, and yeah, she's just loopy, yeah, she's really loopy, and she makes me giggle. Thank you so much for coming on. You know, there was four very distinct chapters to your story that you shared with us today. There was the life as you knew it. There was the moment that everything started to unwind and the impact that that had on you. And we've spoken about just that trauma experience of that when you were leaving and what that looked like and that recovery piece. And then there's now the legacy that you're leaving and the change that you're creating in Australia and New Zealand. Like just to think that if you were there for one person, you know, one person that went through what you went through, that they don't have to do that alone or that they know that there can be hope out there. You'll do it to so many more, but just to even think that one person doesn't have to stand in that space by themselves facing this abyss of blackness going, I don't even know. I can't see anything. I don't know where the road is. I don't know what to do. I don't know who to ask. You know, that's sort of how you described it when you were talking about it. So to think that there's now this organization that hopefully they hear about it, they can be like, well, at least I can start there. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 So thank you so much for coming on today. 
Thank you so much for inviting me. I feel yeah, very, very grateful for the opportunity and really grateful for you know the awareness that it contributes to because, as we've said often in our chat now, I do think that there are people facing these challenges everywhere and it's often really hidden. So the, the more we can talk about it, you know, the better. So thank you so much, Ellie. Thank you, everyone, for sharing this space with us today. I invite you all to have a think about what is one thing that you can do now, this afternoon, if it's morning this morning, just to look after yourself, just to give a little bit of self-care now that you've just listened to the last one to two hours with us. Maybe that's just taking your shoes off and being barefoot on the ground, going for a walk, maybe connecting in with a loved one, maybe just making a cup of tea, but just doing something for you around self-care. And also, do not forget to check out the show notes for the High Performance Leadership Summit. So freaking excited about this one. And yeah, I would love you to be one of the 25 that are sitting in the room experiencing everything that we're going to be bringing over those three days. Otherwise, guys, I will see you all next Monday morning. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.